Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you all for coming and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'll just ask you very briefly to make sure your phone is in a silent mode um, just so we don't have any interruptions. Political and social support for the renting of wombs and sale of infants is increasing in the United States. Despite human rights campaigns to ban surrogacy and the parallel practices of organ sales and prostitution. Women who need money can rent their rooms to people who want children who can pay as much as $200,000. This practice is promoted by a growing fertility industry and is uncritically cheered on by an expanding chorus of LGBT activists. The public, our lawmakers, and even some health professionals are operating relatively fact-free regarding the adverse consequences of surrogacy for everyone, uh, for everyone except the purchasing parents and the businessmen who control fertility clinics. Surrogacy is a medical, ethical, and legal disaster, and we're very fortunate today to be joined by an expert panel to help us better understand some of these underlying issues. So I'll introduce our three panelists in the order in which they'll speak. Uh, First, we'll hear from Jennifer Lal. Jennifer is the founder and president of the Center for Bioethics and Culture and is the producer of several documentary films on third-party reproduction. Her films include Exploitation and Breeders, a subclass of women. In 2018, she released Big Fertility, which is focused on US, one U.S. surrogate mother's harrowing story in particular. She's addressed members of the European Parliament, the United Nations, and legislative bodies across the U.S. on the exploitation of women's reproductive bodies and the best interests of children. Uh, next, we'll hear from Gary Powell. Gary's a political activist and a district counselor in Aylesbury, England. A gay rights advocate for nearly 40 years, he strongly opposes the trend to regard surrogacy as an appropriate campaign objective for the LGBT movement. As a student, he was taught philosophy by the late Baroness Marianne Warnick, who chaired the UK's inquiry that led to the Human Fertilization and Embryology Act in 1990. Then finally, we'll hear from Melissa Farley. Melissa is the founder of the nonprofit organization Prostitution Research and Education, PRE, and the author or co-author of 40 peer-reviewed publications on prostitution and human trafficking. PRE is collaborating with Stop Surrogacy Now to to raise funds for research on the psychological harms to women whose wombs have been rented to produce a child for a buyer. Uh, Following uh, the opening remarks, we'll have time for audience Q&A, and then uh, as you leave, there'll be sandwiches uh, available. Uh, So please join me in welcoming today's panel. 
Uh, thank you, Ryan, and thank you to the Heritage Foundation for um, hosting today's conversation with my esteemed friends and colleagues. Um, but I am going to open, and I've been tasked with speaking about the health risks to women and to the children that are born of surrogacy. The media and Hollywood celebrities like Kim, Kim Kardashian and Jimmy Fallon present surrogacy as a wonderful and beautiful thing. Even Ben Shapiro said surrogacy can be useful and wonderful in some cases when he spoke at the last March for Life here in Washington, D.C. But today, I'm happy to be here today to discuss what you won't hear about in the media, the health risk to women and children. They give birth through commercial contracted pregnancies. On October 8, 2015, an American surrogate named Brooke Brown died. Brooke was a commercial gestational surrogate, meaning she was not the biological mother and she was being paid to carry twins for a couple in Spain where all surrogacy is illegal. Um, the twins also died, and this was an otherwise uncomplicated pregnancy. Brooke was just one day away from a scheduled uh, C-section when she suffered a pregnancy-related complication called placental abruption. Almost immediately after the loss of the, these three lives, the Soro sisters set up a GoFundMe page in order to raise $10,000 for Brooke's family. They weren't even able to raise $7,000. The Soro sisters wrote on the GoFundMe page that the surrogacy community is in mourning over losing our Soro sister, Brooke. She was scheduled to deliver full-term twins when a rare medical complication of pregnancy took her life and the life of the surrogate babies. She was a mother, a friend, and a surrogate mother to five babies. She was an advocate and the face for everything good about surrogacy. Today, we say goodbye to our dear friend. Her life was filled with so much more than surrogacy, but she came into our lives because of it. Her memory lives on with each of us who had the pleasure of knowing and working with Brooke. Dr. Michael Feynman, a fertility doctor in California, wrote on his blog, a recent tragic death of a surrogate mother from a rare but well-known pregnancy complication known as abruption of the placenta, underscores the ethical problems with asking women to serve as surrogates for non-medical reasons. To the family of this unfortunate woman, the reason she was a surrogate does not matter now. However, for those of us who defend the practice of compensated surrogacy in the United States, it is important to remember that the practice should only be allowed for legitimate medical purposes. Dying from a pregnancy-related complication is so rare in the U.S. that many people take it for granted and feel it is acceptable to transfer the risk of pregnancy to another woman. Somehow this tragedy, he writes, seems less egregious if a surrogate mother was doing it for a woman who otherwise could not have a child. While I agree with Feynman that this is indeed a tragic death, I disagree with his opinion that we should allow women to serve as surrogate mothers for legitimate medical purposes. <clears throat> a principled position in the spirit of proper medicine, first do no harm, would require us to not allow women who are not patients to take on real medical risks that they may harm themselves or even lose their lives for. Because of the documentary films that I've made, as Brian mentioned on surrogacy, I have met and interviewed several surrogate mothers who have been harmed physically, emotionally, and almost lost their lives. A recent study in the prestigious journal called Fertility and Sterility, which came out in 2017, compared spontaneous or regular pregnancies with a surrogate pregnancy. And this study reported that neonates born from commissioned embryos 
made from IVF and carried by gestational surrogates have increased incidences of preterm birth, low birth weight babies, maternal gestational diabetes, hypertension, and placental previa compared with live births conceived spontaneously and comparing um, the same woman who gives birth to her own child and her surrogate pregnancies. These pregnancies, surrogate pregnancies, were also more likely to end in cesarean section rather than vaginal birth, which of course equates more risk to the mother and to the baby. If you need more evidence of the medical risk to women serving as surrogates or the babies that they carry, Dr. Alan Merritt in my state, California, who's a perinatologist at Loma Linda Medical Center, produced a snapshot of medical um, outcomes at at his academic um, medical center from 2002 to 2013. Analysis of 69 infants delivered at Loma Linda Medical Center through surrogacy found an increase in multiple births increase in neonatal intensive care admissions and hospital length of stay, with hospital charges several times beyond that of a term conceived naturally. So if a surrogate gave birth to a singleton or a twin, the hospital charges were increased 26 times compared to a natural pregnancy. And in the case of a surrogate giving birth to triplets or higher, the hospital charges were 173 times that. The conclusion was maternal costs for surrogates exceed those of women who conceive naturally, and these costs are especially magnified in women who give birth to multiple babies. Why are these costs so high? Why are the number of days spent in the hospital so long? Because a surrogate pregnancy naturally is a high-risk pregnancy. A woman's body is not designed to carry another woman's baby. Even in the case of a woman carrying one baby, the statistics are are not good. If you're still not convinced, in February 2019, the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology published their findings, risk of severe maternal morbidity by maternal fertility status, looking at eight states in America. They compared six different groups of women. Um, The study is significant for several reasons. Most important, it's a huge study. They looked at almost 1.5 million pregnancies and births in eight states in the U.S. The results, too, are quite disturbing. As my research assistant said, it doesn't seem like the fertility doctors even paused to consider their own findings in this research. Let me highlight a few of the findings. Keep in mind that a gestational surrogate is pregnant using IVF, in vitro fertilization, and donor eggs. All four groups in this study showed that IVF pregnancies had high increased risk of, of blood transfusion needing, needed at delivery. All four groups of these IVF pregnancies had increased risk of third and fourth degree lacerations at delivery if it was a vaginal birth. There was an increased risk for unplanned hysterectomy in IVF pregnancies that used donor eggs, the surrogate. All four IVF groups had higher rates of gestational diabetes when compared to fertile women. Pregnancies from IVF with donor eggs had the highest rates of pre-gestational and gestational hypertension. Neonatal intensive care admissions were higher, and IVF using donor eggs had the highest rate of all categories of neonatal intensive care admissions as well as admissions to the hospital um, of the birth mother. So far, I've only been able to highlight the real immediate short-term risk to surrogate mothers and the infants that they deliver. What we don't know, and the research that Melissa and I are interested in, um, is the longer-term harms to women and to the children. 
Um, I will leave you with this, this illustration if you're an animal lover, as my husband and I are. If you want to get a new puppy or a new cat, uh, a baby kitten, it is required. It's actually seen as a cruelty to animals and inhumane to remove that newborn um, animal from its mother. You have to wait six to eight weeks by law in the state of California to adopt a puppy or a little um, baby kitten. As a pediatric nurse, I know that maternal child bonding is good, normal, and natural, and encouraged, except where surrogacy ignores and waves all those important um, bonds away, um, with the narrative being the kids are all right. When Brooke Brown died, I immediately sent a letter to the Attorney General's office in Idaho asking for an investigation. I received no response. I contacted the press in hopes that the media would cover her story, but again, no response. My office reached out to the local Baptist church that held Brooke's memorial service, inquiring about the memorial service for the twins who had died. We were told no one knew what had become of those children. Brooke's body, which had carried her own three children to term, and then five surrogate babies, was put at high risk, something her doctors and the fertility industry surely knew. We have no business ethically, morally, or as a matter of principle, building a multi-billion dollar a year industry on the backs of the health and well-being of women and children. In the end, Brooke's, Brooke's life and those of the infants she carried were not newsworthy, and they were barely worth $7,000. There's nothing wonderful, beautiful, or useful about that. Thank you. I'm Gary Powell, and I've been a gay rights activist uh, in the UK for just under 40 years. I'm also a conservative political activist, and I currently serve as a district councillor in Aylesbury, England, for the Conservative Party. And for several, several years, I ran a national campaign to improve public administration complaints procedures. Sometimes I'm asked why I focus on talking about surrogacy in the gay community, as though I was singling out the gay community in a homophobic way. I do so simply because I've been a gay activist for a long time, and I don't want my community to be supporting something as harmful and exploitative as surrogacy. I oppose all forms of surrogacy for everyone, but the gay community is my area of specialism and experience, so that's what I focus on. I also fear that the LGBT community is being used by the surrogacy industry to legitimize its activities in general. Over time, I've become increasingly alienated by developments in the LGBT rights movement, and it now has some campaign objectives, such as championing surrogacy, that I simply can't support. Surrogacy is increasingly being presented as though it were an LGBT right. For example, on a Sunday in July 2018, Tens of thousands of LGBT people demonstrated for gay rights across Israel. Israel is actually the only country in the Middle East where gay rights are protected, by the way. But these demonstrations were different from standard LGBT rights demonstrations, as they were a response to the new Israeli surrogacy law excluding gay male couples from surrogacy arrangements. So clearly, surrogacy is coming to be regarded as an LGBT right. 
By the way, I prefer the term gay or gay and lesbian to LGBT. The term LGBT fuses different campaigns and issues together that are quite distinct. For example, gay and lesbian issues have to do with sexual orientation and trans issues have to do with gender identity. They're completely different issues. So generally, when I use the term LGBT, I'm referring to the modern movement that I have serious reservations about. The modern LGBT movement seems to me to have become quite authoritarian and to lack critical self-awareness. The LGBT media helps to maintain this status quo by kindly telling us what we must believe and support, and even what we must call ourselves, and which other unrelated campaigns we have to fuse with. Pushing back is risky. A dissenting view posted beneath an online article in the LGBT media is likely to lead to ad hominem attacks. Heresy on LGBT issues attracts verbal abuse, deliberate misrepresentation, or even mobbing. The LGBT media almost always presents surrogacy as a beautiful, harmless, and irreproachable vehicle for gay men to have children. Questions regarding exploitation, harm, and validity don't get airtime. It feels like there's an LGBT ministry of truth somewhere that monitors, punishes, and eliminates LGBT thought crime. Perhaps it's called the LGBTQI plus Ministry of Loving Kindness and Gentle Correction. When I speak out against surrogacy, I often get challenged, mocked, and called a bigot, a homophobe, an Uncle Tom, and worse. There's a tendency for dissenters to get shouted down and abused these days when they dare to challenge anything in the modern LGBT rights canon. A lot of people, as a result, simply keep their differing views to themselves. Surrogacy can't be an LGBT right, as there is no universal right to be a parent for anyone, gay or straight. Gay and lesbian people can be very good parents, just as straight people can be very good parents. I've witnessed excellent and transformative parenting from same-sex parents who adopted children from local authority care, children who had been emotionally damaged and needed a stable and healing environment. I'm not opposed to same-sex parenting per se. In surrogacy, however, the perceived right to have a child competes with the right of women and the right of children to freedom from exploitation, instrumentalization, and commodification, which are violated by surrogacy arrangements. Even if an LGBT right did exist here, it could not be an absolute right, and it could not prevail over the rights of the women and children impacted. Why is it that the LGBT community has become so inclined to black and white thinking and closed to critical discussion? This has not come out of a vacuum. Gay and lesbian people have been subjected to discrimination, misrepresentation and exclusion for centuries. This in turn has created an isolated and alienated community carrying a lot of hurt and anger. This deliberate exclusion from mainstream values, institutions and activities has encouraged a siege mentality among many LGBT people, where objective detached thinking is far more difficult to access and other people's motives can be subjected to highly pessimistic interpretations. 
Sometimes when a discussion about gay people and surrogacy is going on, I see some people who purport to be opponents of surrogacy using the discussion as an opportunity to attack gay people in general, sometimes using unconscionable terms. Such individuals do a lot of harm, as attacks of this kind create a polarisation and actually encourage gay people and our allies to support surrogacy as a defiant reaction to homophobic bigotry. And I mean real bigotry here. The word bigotry is bandied around a lot these days in such a casual and inappropriate manner that it's becoming meaningless. But I mean the original sense of bigotry. Um, such people seem to use surrogacy as simply another stick to beat gay people with. And the gay community tends to sim simply grab that stick and beat them back with it. It encourages opposition to surrogacy to be perceived as homophobic and that it's extremely harmful to our campaign, very damaging to our campaign. What also doesn't help is when respected and high-profile people with a strong public influence condone or endorse surrogacy. Even Mayor Pete Buttigieg seems to be getting in on the act now, having declared that he and his husband are, quote, hoping to have a little one soon, unquote. He dodged the question in a recent CNN interview when he was invited to clarify whether this meant adoption or surrogacy. If Mr Buttigieg and his husband want to pursue commercial surrogacy, I hope they have plenty of money set aside for it. It commonly entails a six-figure sum. I can't think of any other claimed LGBT right that excludes anyone but the significantly wealthy from access. Mr Buttigieg and his husband might well turn out to be excellent parents. However, there are other people, gay and straight, who will view having children via surrogacy as a glamorised status symbol and a chance to flaunt their wealth, an opportunity for ugly, conspicuous consumption at the cost of the instrumentalization and the commodification of women and children. Once the legal surrogacy gate gets opened, all kinds of people walk through it. We really need to get back to basics and reconsider our gay rights priorities. The current US administration, with its call for the decriminalization of homosexuality worldwide, is providing a welcome reminder that gay rights should not stop at Western borders and that there are still very serious issues to deal with. There are still people being flogged, imprisoned and hanged in some countries for being gay. The gay and lesbian rights movement is too important for it to be tarnished by an association with the campaign to legalise and legitimise surrogacy. As gay people, we cannot insist on the right to carry out practices that harm the rights of others. Many of those supporting commercial surrogacy seem to have a blind spot that prevents them seeing the parallels with the selling of human organs. The sale of human organs is banned in almost every country worldwide. Otherwise, destitute people would sell their kidneys to the wealthy out of desperation. Clearly, it feels to most people as though selling organs crosses a red line. So if it's not acceptable to sell organs, which would result in lives being saved, then why should it be acceptable to sell babies? Especially given that a baby, unlike a kidney, is an individual human being in his or her own right. And especially given that, unlike a kidney, no one is going to lose their life as a result of being unable to buy a baby. Who will benefit from commercial surrogacy being legalised on the coattails of the LGBT community, apart from wealthy commissioning parents? It is, of course, the surrogacy agencies 
and they're lawyers and physicians, big fertility we call them. There is a ton of money to be made, and the LGBT rights movement is doing the heavy lifting towards legalisation and social acceptance. Once surrogacy becomes an established LGBT right, anyone then opposing surrogacy will be accused of homophobia. This is increasingly happening already. Rather than being an LGBT rights issue, surrogacy is a women's rights issue and a children's rights issue, a safeguarding issue. And like the sale of human organs, it is a practice that should be banned worldwide in all its forms. Thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, it's an honor to be on the panel with you all. Um, I'm going to describe some parallels between surrogacy and prostitution. Words matter. Let's not turn her into the harm that's done to her. We call her a battered woman, not a battery. We call her a woman in prostitution, not a prostitute. And she's a birth mother, not a surrogate. Words camouflage human rights violations. Prostitution is called sex work or compensated dating. Surrogacy is called reproductive work or a labor of love. The birth mother is called an incubator, a bearer, a provider, an oven, a suitcase, a surrogate. Womb rental is medically described as a fragile practice or third-party reproductive arrangements privileging multi-party medical decision-making. Is that a mouthful? The birth mother is called a gestational carrier, which denies her humanity by commodifying her and ignoring the fact that she's a medical patient with a high-risk pregnancy. In both prostitution and surrogacy, the women are described as providers of what the buyers want. It's not buying a baby, said a surrogacy lawyer. It's buying a receptacle. A medical article referred to the birth mother as the woman attached to the rented womb and to the child as the tenant. The business of surrogacy today works like this. A person or a couple who cannot or choose not to have a child of their own contact a surrogacy agency that has a roster of women who allegedly consent to receive an embryo, bear the child for nine months, and deliver another person's child to them. This involves fertility drugs whose side effects are highly dangerous. The long-term medical and psychological consequences of egg harvesting and surrogacy on the birth mother are unknown. Today, accounts of serious harm exist and need further investigation. In surrogacy, a woman's self-definition as altruistic and nurturing is exploited for the benefit of others. This is codified in the notion of the contented breeder. In prostitution, 
a woman's self-definition as a sexual being is exploited for the definition of others, for the benefit of others. This is codified in the notion of the happy hooker. Promoting these harms are rationalization that some women just love to be pregnant with anybody's child. And the rationalization that some women just love to have sex with anyone. Prostitution is a sexist institution in which men procure women for sexual use, and it's been falsely framed as transgression or liberation, which is what Gary was talking about. Surrogacy is also framed as transgressive or progressive because wealthy single people or gay men have children via surrogacy, and they're not traditional families. But the role of the birth mother in surrogacy is sexist to the hilt. Women are seen as objects in the marketplace, while at the same time, that reality is denied, and she's said to have made a choice to sell her services, not her body. The argument goes like this. She's been compensated for her choice to make money by using her body in a way that benefits the womb renters or sex buyers. What's ignored is the context that limits women's options. Women make the choices that are available to them as women in a male-dominated social and economic system. The needs and desires of the sex buyers or the needs and desires of the purchasing parents, these needs take priority over the woman who needs money. The payment of money is used to camouflage and disappear the harms of surrogacy and prostitution. It's assumed that some women prefer exploitation to poverty. A sex buyer explained, yes, they're exploited, but they're making lots of money. A surrogacy apologist explained, exploitation should be allowed because the exploitees are better with it than without it. Class differences are ever-present in surrogacy. In U.S. surrogacy, it's most often working or middle-class women who rent their wombs to wealthy purchasing parents. People are confused sometimes by the fact that U.S. birth mothers whose wombs are rented are not financially destitute as they were, for example, in India. But the blatant market transaction of surrogacy threatens its cultural acceptability. So surrogacy pimps deliberately conceal this fact in order to avoid political challenges from feminists. U.S. surrogacy businesses require birth mothers to state that they feel an impulse to help others and that they enjoy being pregnant. These agencies screen out women who seem poor or are too focused on making money. They're not good for business. 
These scripted motivations for surrogacy reflect traditional values about reproduction, motherhood, and family, anything but money. In prostitution, there are also class differences between very poor women in countries like India or Czechoslovakia and U.S. middle-class women engaged in sugar-daddy dating prostitution to pay for college tuition. But as the U.S. economy worsens, as social safety nets for women are removed, and as the climate crisis intensifies, making those already vulnerable more vulnerable economically, there may very well be more surrogacy and more prostitution, unfortunately. Medical risks to the woman in prostitution or to the woman whose womb is rented are ignored or minimized. Informed consent, real informed consent, is out of the question because nobody knows what the risks really are. So it's impossible to lay them out if that's what you really want to do, which isn't the case oftentimes. A veneer of medicalization covers the practices of prostitution and womb rental. And prostitution, of course, there's great concern about HIV risk. And in surrogacy, there are clinics and doctors monitoring her womb. But the party who's most medically protected is the sex buyer in prostitution and the purchasing parent's interests, that's the child, in surrogacy. Physicians and surrogacy agencies often do not follow accepted medical guidelines. For example, a 2017 report found that the total number of embryos transferred into the womb of a birth mother exceeded medical guidelines in most cases. The commodification of the birth mother, the enforced altruism, the costly fertility treatments, and the purchasing parent's strong desire for their biological child all result in an underestimation of the health risks of multiple embryo transfers. Public health campaigns to reduce HIV and STD and prostitution show similar motivations to protect the sex buyer, but not the woman in prostitution. She receives health checks for HIV because she needs to be sold as clean, not because anybody cares about her health risks. Sex buyers don't get checked for HIV before they use a woman in prostitution. Facts about the violence in prostitution are minimized or legalized, are minimized or denied, and legalization doesn't change that. It doesn't change those risks of surrogacy. It doesn't change those risks of prostitution. Disconnection and dissociation, speaking as a psychologist here, they're normalized in surrogacy and prostitution. A split between mind and body is really a necessary part of survival in both situations. An intimate part of a woman's self, her autonomous sexuality or her intimate connection with a child in a womb are separated from the rest of her being. The body presented, provided for sex 
is separated from the self. The uterus that nurtures the child for nine months is not considered the real mother. The birth mother is abstracted away. She's named a pre-birth child care provider. Sadly, these messages are internalized by women who are paid to rent their wombs. She repeats to herself that she's just the oven or that she's offering the gift of life to the purchasing couple. One woman said to herself again and again, it's not my baby, it's not my baby. Grief symptoms have been noted in birth mothers after giving up the child to the purchasing parents. Duh. If you've ever heard cows or sheep after their calves and lambs have been sent to market, then you might have an idea of what this grief feels like. While we now know that prostitution results in lasting symptoms of psychological distress, there's been little attention paid to the psychological harms of surrogacy. And they haven't even been studied in women who rent out their wombs. Please talk with us about how to support research on the psychological harms of surrogacy. Support for surrogacy and prostitution comes from two political arenas, as I see it, the neoliberal left and the libertarian right. What these groups have in common is the philosophy that if it can be sold and if someone makes a profit, then it's an acceptable practice. Attacks on the business of womb rental come from the left, feminists who analyze surrogacy and prostitution based on its harms to the women who are bought for sex or whose wombs are rented. And attacks on surrogacy also come from the conservative right who object to prostitution and surrogacy on the basis of morality or because of its disruption of traditional family values. So to conclude, exploiters and predators thrive in the face of indifference and ignorance. The less people know about surrogacy and prostitution, the more that void can be filled with lies. As the executive director of Prostitution Research and Education, I'm happy to work with a sister organization, Stop Surrogacy Now. I hope you'll support their work, their films, and their advocacy on behalf of women who've been harmed via surrogacy. And I hope that you'll consider taking action against the human rights violations against economically vulnerable women in reproductive trafficking. Thanks. Okay, so we have uh, some time for questions and answers. Um, Just raise your hand. I'll call on you. Wait till the microphone comes to you so that people who are watching this on live stream and the archive video will be on YouTube so they can hear your question. Identify yourself and make sure your question ends with a question mark. And we'll go right over here first. Hi, Brandon Showalter, Christian Post. This is a horrifying but very informative panel. Uh, Melissa, my question is for you. You mentioned the camps that are resisting this and supporting this. Uh, I'm curious to know, uh, 
given that you know racial minorities are these are poor women and the um this just is predatory capitalism this is a predatory form of capitalism i'm curious as to given the many harms to women and particularly racial minority that the left just is blind to this but also speak more to how uh you know conservatives in the room can successfully fight against the libertarian right when they would just want to make a profit i would be interested in your thoughts on how we can ground this and like no these are human beings with inherent dignity and worth and this practice no matter your political bent should be you know let's just ground this and get this right i'm going to say one thing and pass this on to jennifer who's taught me about this issue this point that in the united states surrogacy is not driven like prostitution is, as much by race as by class. And this is very, this is a smart marketing ploy, as I've learned from Jennifer, but I'm going to let her explain it better. It's a smart marketing ploy on the part of the surrogacy pimps because they don't want to be seen as it's being a blatant market transaction. So they screen out people who might be uh, poor. And to my understanding, Jennifer, they are not using a minority women, possibly because of the racism of the purchasing parents. I don't know. You know more. Yeah, that's, that's in, in fact the case in the United States. It's not, it does divide on class issue, economic class versus um, the, the normal ways of thinking of racial class divisions. I do, I guess I'm forever the optimist though. And when, before we made our film Breeders, a subclass of women, one of the requirements of the funder of that film was to do, um, polling of attitudes of Americans around surrogacy. And when the polling company came back with the data, they basically said, are you sure you want to start this stop surrogacy now campaign? Cause you don't have anybody with you. You don't have, you don't have any demographic, any religious, um, political age group. They said you're not even starting at ground zero, you're in a, in a hole. And what the data clearly showed was it's just a huge educational deficit. Like, like Melissa said, if you don't have the information, then the predators fill it with lies. And so I, I am a firm believer in all people of goodwill, once educated, will overwhelmingly choose to make good, virtuous, um, choices. So, which is why we're hopeful that even the libertarians in the Silicon Valley where I live, um, uh, will have a stream of, of social consciousness and human rights consciousness that we can tap into. So. Yeah, right here, right here in the middle. Over here. I'm Eleanor Gayatan with the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women. Thank you to the Heritage Foundation for this excellent panel. Very informative. But we haven't heard about the scope. I have no sense of how pra common this practice is, where it's being practiced. It's a transnational phenomena. I heard a very bad story about a, a Chinese couple who bought a surrogate in California who gave birth to two children. They were scooped, they were shipped back to China. It turned out one of those children was a natural child of the surrogate. An absolutely bizarre story that contributes to this idea of harm, unintended consequences. Um, so scope and also transnational phenomena. Thank you. 
Well, um, that was Jessica Allen. We actually broke her story because she contacted me when she found out she had surrendered her own biological child along with the Chinese. And it was only picked up because Jessica Allen's Caucasian married to an African-American man. So the, the immediate realization in the labor room was there was a Chinese baby and a mixed race baby. But it took her two months to get her baby back. And it took her a year to get her her name as recognized as birth mother on the birth certificate. Um, back to your a question of scope, it's, it's, um, it's an international trafficking problem. So as India closes their borders, the market moves. Um, you know, Thailand's closed their borders, Nepal's closed their borders. Now there's a burgeoning movement and market opening up in, in U- the Ukraine. Um, California, I say, is the wild, 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 wild west. You know, to say Octumom, you know, um, and you, anything goes if you have the money, you can buy it. So, but we don't track. I mean, the reality is mostly overwhelmingly around the world. When a baby is born in a hospital, in a labor and delivery, we don't say who the birth mother, surrogate mother is, who's the egg donor, sperm donor, who the intended purchasing parents are. It's a highly, highly unregulated industry. We do know that the numbers are growing. It's a growth industry because if you just follow the finances, um, and the market watch and the business insider report. It's a, you know, multi, multi billion dollar a year industry that's trending up. It's, of course, expanded now that we have marriage equality in the United States with, you know, Gary's remarks of now this is seen as an LGBT right, a way of creating a family. But as far as good hard data, it's pretty hard to come by. Yes. Wesley Smith Center on um, Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. As I listen to this, what really struck me is the uh, very fertile area this could be for civil trial lawyers. I, I th- just immediately thought of two things. Number one, the lack of informed consent, which means that if someone is harmed, there's a heck of a lawsuit. And second is the conflict, inherent, intrinsic conflict of interest between the surrogate doctor, the uh, the fertility people, uh, and the surrogate woman, because she's not the patient. The patient is the is the baby, and the patients, quote unquote, uh, the clients are the purchasers. And so I wondered if uh, any of you have thought about reaching out to trial lawyer groups because they're always interested in making money. Uh, and um, and I'll, that's my question. And then I want to thank Gary very much because uh, the el- the gay lesbian issue I think becomes like a bulldozer that nobody can stand athwart. And and I think it needs somebody who's gay or lesbian to actually do that because if a straight person tries it, they're going to be accused of all kinds of hatreds. Legal. Well, I, Wesley, you know, you and I go back a long time. I can't find lawyers that want to take these cases for for women. I'm pulling my hair out with a young woman in Chicago, Illinois, right now, who just delivered a baby to a single um, woman who's from France, who's down in Florida now with a baby and can't get immigration papers to get the baby back to Paris. And I've tried to, you know, reach out to social media and call lawyers and try to find legal representation. Um, I don't know. I'm like you. There's chum in the water. You would think lawyers would smell, you know, money to be had. Um, Jessica Allen's case that we just mentioned earlier, she's in active, you know, uh, active case right now. It will be interesting to see what happens because I think once you have a victory, perhaps for the surrogate mother legally, a legal victory, maybe there will be other people that might start taking on. It's an unsettled new area of the law, too, so a lot of lawyers just have no expertise. 
you get a, once you get a big judgment, that's when the other one is yeah. starting. Uh, one, one other comment about that. I, I think we do need um, nonprofit agencies to represent women uh, who have been trafficked or prostituted or whose wombs have been rented. I mean, it would be an educational thing alone to have the same agency representing them legal, representing their interests legally. There have been a number of successful non-criminal, you're talking non-criminal damages lawsuits. There have been successful lawsuits in trafficking cases where attorneys knew the traffickers had a lot of money. And certainly these surrogacy agencies, some of them have a lot of money, I think they do the same thing the traffickers do, which is it's concealed and shell agencyed out, but it can be tracked down. And um, I would certainly support such a attempt to set up something like that. Thank you for your very kind uh, remarks. And I think um, what I'm particularly concerned about in the LGBT community is, as you say, if you're if you're not gay or lesbian and you make a uh, you offer any kind of criticism, um, very balanced criticism on this issue, you can be immediately accused of being bigoted and homophobic. And those words, what I'm I'm very concerned, oh, and I get confused of being, I get uh, accused of being homophobic as well and and bigoted and Uncle Tom, all the rest of it. Um, so I don't even get away with it. So a lot of gay and lesbian people are actually frightened of speaking out, and I think. One has to have developed quite a thick carapace over the years to be able to cope with the kind of vitriol that can be thrown at you these days by the, the social media. And it's uh, even now, and I'm fairly thick-skinned, it, it can be quite a horrible experience to be mobbed online. It often happens on Twitter when I retweet something of, of Jennifer's and then the we get the neoliberals and the, the radical libertarians come out and other people from anonymous accounts, goodness knows, how they came to be, how they are, and who they are, but it, it can be quite a horrible thing. What I'm very concerned about is this redefinition of language. Like, you're now homophobic if you agree with civil partnerships, but you don't agree with gay marriage, might be for, for religious reasons. You might be very pro-gay and lesbian in every respect, but you, you prefer there to be a distinction between gay marriage and civil partnership. I, I personally support gay marriage because I'm because it's my type of conservatism and I want to try and draw gay and lesbian people into a more conservative mindset. So for me, that's a good institution um, to promote the gay and lesbian community after years of exclusion. But that's a, we're on a different topic now. Uh, but um, I, um, I am worried about the this, this misuse of language, people being accused of bigot- bigotry when they're not bigoted and being accused of hate when they don't show any signs of hatred at all. And what's happening is these words are being redefined. Mm. And we won't have a word left anymore to describe what real hate is mm. or what real fascism is. You don't have to do much to be called a fascist these days. So we won't have a word. So the real fascists will be able to swan around and not have any word to describe them. And this is this is very dangerous. And it feels to me, and I'm kind of a broader philosophical point, as though this is coming about because of um, cultural and veridical relativism, that people are losing the sense of there being any such thing as objective truth. And these days, people even talk about my truth. This is my truth about my experience. This is my truth. Well, there's no such thing as your truth. There is either the truth 
or there is an inaccuracy. You don't have your truth. But people are treating truth as though it's something relative these days. And um, and this is happening with language. And it's all happening in the, in the political domain. If there's no such thing, if you don't have a consensus that there's objective truth, you can't get traction on arguments in order to persuade somebody else that their position is inconsistent or unethical. And that this is a very, very dangerous direction that Western civilization is going in. So I think there's a wider picture here to consider. Thank you very much for your panel. It was wonderful. Carolyn Kasakran, State Department. You mentioned the closing of the borders in Thailand and India for surrogacy. Do you see additional traction happening worldwide, globally, for the international human rights community to rally around the abuse of impoverished women through surrogacy? Go ahead. Okay. Um, well, again, I have to be the forever optimist. Um, so it is encouraging to me when I see the global south overwhelmingly closing the, the borders. Um, they're, they're removing the, the commercial side of it. They're taking the money out of it. So like the current law in India is now only altruistic surrogacy within the borders of India between Indian, you know, members of the, the, the society must be a medical need. So clearly, and it has to be a family member helping. So a sister helping her sister or something like that, which I don't support all that, but I'm happy to see that moving in that direction. And similar trends have been seen in the other countries that I rattled off. And what's encouraging is not that that has happened, but why has that happened? And it's been the acknowledgement of the exploitation of women and children. I mean, women in India have died. Um, women in India have had to have um, unplanned hysterectomies and mass hemorrhages. Um, children have been abandoned that weren't met to the specifications of the buyers. So they've been left with impoverished surrogate birth mothers. So the why is in, important. What's happening, though, is that, again, back to the educational deficit, um, is that the rest of us are working like crazy to keep surrogacy um, out of those countries. And most of Europe has for, forever has prohibited these practices. Now, the, the battle is fierce in France and in the UK to be able to pay where it's only altruistic surrogacy and in Spain. And so it'll be really interesting to see if those countries are able to hold the line. And through the Stop Surrogacy Now campaign, we are connected with these global NGOs. So we're always supporting one another, sharing information. We're writing statements to the different country governments, why we think they should leave their laws as is. So I'm optimistic. Now, the United States and Canada, will we be the ones left um, where with our open markets and borders, you know, I remind people just Google anchor baby and surrogacy and see what's happening in the United States as it relates to all these countries that can't do this in their countries. And, you know, we're happy, you know, in California, my state fertility agency will in intentionally advertise and promote come to California. You know, we will help you get your take home baby and we'll navigate all those international problems. So. Um, that's the sort of the, the, the current landscape, but I, I am optimistic because of the global south. I am very attentive to what's happening in Europe right now with the debate, um, and maybe one day the United States will um, be able to be instructed. We are unfortunately out of time, um, but this panel has been outstanding, so please join me in thanking our very brave panelists. and help yourself to a sandwich as you exit the auditorium.
guys did great. You made me so proud. You made me so proud of you. Thank you. Thank you.